0: And, you know, I have very bony elbows, and they are an effective, defensive weapon.
1: <laughs> On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week a guest and I will visit one of DC's many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to Proof Politics, I'm your host Bill Shute. You know, for those of us who came to Washington in the 80s, you will recall what a Tex-Mex desert this town was. So imagine the cries of joy in 1990 when Raul Sanchez and Luis Reyes opened Cactus Cantina at the corner of Wisconsin Ave and Macomb Street, literally a block from National Cathedral. It was such the destination spot for people who had an affinity for Mexican food that it became known as a favorite destination for George and Barbara Bush. In fact, they had their own table and the owners took one of the chairs and painted it red, white, and blue in the President's honor. But it became a real favorite for those of us who were desperate for good Mexican food to the point where our guest guestbert today and I We're known for making pretty much the weekly business lunch trip all the way up to this corner of the woods, even though it is so far removed from the world of politics in Washington. We could not resist it. And it was easy to see why, because then, as now, they still serve a solid batch of authentic Mexican food. They've got a very extensive menu. It's all based on the four fundamentals. They've got fresh chips... They've got great salsa. They make both here. They've got a wonderful tortilla machine out front, so you can watch them making the fresh flour tortillas that always come out, smelling so good and are warm when they deliver them to the table. And they're also known for very potent margaritas, which more than once led to an afternoon nap, you might say. Our guest, Bert, is an old friend and colleague of mine who I worked with throughout the 90s, Kent Wells. Kent, thanks so much for being here, and cheers.
0: You're welcome, Bill. Thank you.
1: Well, Kent is Vice President of Federal Relations for AT&T, and unlike a lot of our other guests on 80 Proof Politics, he's pretty much been with them since he started his professional career, although it's not always been known as AT&T, so let me walk you through a little bit of his resume here. He has become one of the most trusted and renowned voices in telecommunications and wireless policy in town because he started with what was then Southwestern Bell, one of the old Bell companies in 1985, right after AT&T was broken up into the regional Bell operating companies. Stayed there throughout the 90s. In 2001, moved over to do wireless work with Singular, which was the combination of Southwestern Bell's wireless with Bell South's wireless. And then around that same time, Southwestern Bell bought out AT&T and obviously adopted that brand name because it was much better known. So Kent comes back into the fold and for the past 12 years has been doing government affairs, federal relations for AT&T. Kent, you've seen a huge change in this industry in that period of time? I mean, you've, you've gone from plain old telephone service to wireless. Now you're into things like direct TV and dark messaging. You have to be concerned with all of this stuff that is telecommunications today. How have you adapted to that over the years from a federal relations standpoint?
0: Well, it's, that's been one of the fun things about the job is learning new issues as the company has grown and diversified. When you and I were there, I mean, we had really three or four issues that we worked on.
1: You could pretty much tell which issue you were going to be working on by flipping the calendar. Right.
0: And, you know, for 10 years or so, which culminated in the passage of the 1996 Telecom Act, it was after that 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 our old company, Southwestern Bell, started growing by acquiring other companies. And then more recently, in the last 10 to 15 years, diversifying into other businesses which we obviously hope will help us grow in the future, but that's made it more interesting, too.
1: Yeah, Bennett, has, how has the day-to-day lobbying technique changed along that way for you?
0: Well, for us, I don't think the lobbying technique has changed okay. a lot. Uh, I hope that's the correct answer in that we're not uh, hindering our effectiveness by essentially doing things the way we usually have done them okay. but by having to learn a lot of additional issues and we have more on our plate I guess the one fundamental change would be it makes setting priorities a little more challenging mm-hmm. uh, so when you go visit with members or staff about you know a myriad issue, number of issues you have to
1: kind of identify for them which ones are really the top priority for you at a given moment in time. Yeah, so when we were doing this in the 90s, we had a, a natural constituent base because we were regional and we had a number of delegations that we had to track and pay attention to because they were on the ground. They knew who Southwestern Bell was. They knew people who worked for them. Everybody paid the Southwestern Bell bill in those days. As you get to be more of a global brand, like AT&T, that can't be the case anymore. How do you know who to go talk to? Which decision maker to to deal with? It
0: does change, but that's still the foundation for what we do. The the areas, we call it in-region, where we still offer local telephone service, even though that's a shrinking business, but that's the heritage of the company. So in those areas, we still have a lot of employees, a lot of customers. And that really forms the basis for the, the offices that we consider priorities to go to and the ones that we think will be most interested in what we have to say. Not because they're necessarily going to agree with us, but because they know we do represent a lot of their
1: constituents. So you've expanded the breadth of issues that you're dealing with because of the expansion of the product services. Has the your shop expanded? Oh, yes. Too? I mean, how big is the shop now?
0: You know, I I really don't even know the the total number (laughs) in our overall office. Well, I mean, I think when you and I were together, we probably
1: had a couple dozen total. Including regulatory. Yeah, including
0: regulatory. So we're much bigger than that now, and we have more in-house people that work uh, with consumer groups, grassroots supporters, things like that, a much larger legal department that's represented here in D.C., and then, you know, uh, approximately a dozen
1: in-house lobbyists that work with Congress. And I assume you outsource a lot, too. We, we outsourced uh, outside oh, yeah. firms a lot in the 90s, but yeah. I assume that's gotten more. Right, and it's bigger. just probably grown
0: proportionately as the whole office and operation has grown. But, yeah, we do uh, retain a lot of outside experts to help us with our
1: lobbying. So, what are you looking for when you go outside to, to hire a contract lobbyist or a firm? Are you supplementing what you don't have in-house or are you amplifying what you do when it's critical? It's both. Okay.
0: I mean, uh, you look f- primarily for people who are are well-connected with members of Congress. You know, typically, most people when they're at that point in their career, where they're working with a private lobby firm or running their own shop. They identify themselves as either Republican or Democrat, and so Mm -hmm. we try to have a blend of outside help representing both sides. And not only do you want them to be well-connected, but you want people that you think can give you good advice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever thought about doing that yourself?
0: Occasionally, from from time to time. But, you know, over the years that I've been there, every time I might have considered doing that, you know, something changed. Uh, How so? Either in... My particular job assignment, or we're in the midst of another merger, or something like that, so that it was like, well, I kind of want to ride this out, and then, you know, here I am, thirty-some years
1: later. Exactly. Well, they've obviously taken good care of you. That's absolutely true. Yeah, very good. One of the questions I want to ask you today does also go back to a reflection on how we were doing things in the '90s. Not to just keep this on nostalgic thread but to help draw comparisons of how much your work may have changed or grown over the years. But there was a lot of coalition work Mm -hmm. for us in the 90s, and we did a lot of work with our trade association. Uh, Obviously, you went to Singular, you started doing wireless. That brought in a whole new realm of others that you were working with. They have their own trade association, and and there there were other companies who were in that space, but Now you're such a big presence. I mean ATT is a global brand. Are you a coalition one? Sometimes it feels that way. Yeah. Uh,
0: in part because of the consolidation within what you know, we thought of as the old telephone industry. Uh, there aren't quite as many players. We still work through all those trade associations, but we have more of them now. Is that right? That we're part of so You know, uh, U.S. Telecom, which represents the local telephone companies, we're still a a big member of that association. Uh, CTIA is the Wireless Industry Association. We're a member of uh, that organization. The satellite broadcasting industry after our TV acquisition, we belong to them. Uh, As as a result of our recently closed acquisition of Time Warner, we're now part of the Motion Picture Association. Oh, my gosh.
1: uh, And cable...
0: Well, no, we don't. We're okay. not. The Satellite Association sort of is a complement to the Cable okay. Association. But we work much more closely with the cable industry on issues than, than I could have imagined, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah,
1: so I would imagine that puts a natural pressure on increasing both in-house and reaching out to other people who know those worlds well. That's
0: true, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, that has got to be a management nightmare at times, I would.
0: I would Can you spend all of
1: your day dealing with well, trade associations? Yeah, trade?
0: There's, there's more of that than, uh, uh, you know, uh, when you and I started, it was, you go to a couple of meetings uh, with your trade associations, and, and, you know, you saw everybody that was there, and you kind of did it then, and, and now there's just more of it that you have to do, so right. the management side of
1: it has definitely become more time consuming. No well, doubt. And I know there's no such thing as a typical day for any advocate here in town, but what are some of the tools that you use to get your job done in the course of a week or a month?
0: Well I'd say one thing that's changed a lot and, and made the job a little bit easier to handle has been technology, we had all the advent of email primarily. Sure. Uh, in fact I was thinking about this driving over here today that, you know, when you and I were starting this, I mean we barely had voicemail.
1: Oh work, I you know? yeah, so, exactly. Uh, Well, we may have had a tape machine at home.
0: Right. And, and, you know, in the office, you always kind of knew who the staffers were that didn't really want to talk to you because they'd leave you messages, you know, at 8 o'clock at night. Oh, yeah, sorry, I missed your call earlier, but call me back. Well, now with email, you kind of get around that problem because as we all experience, and as we knew ourselves when we worked on the bill, staffers' time is very valuable and limited, and, and they are extremely busy, and so... Being able to not interrupt their day with a phone call or having to stop by their office and getting a message through by email or texting them
1: really helps shortcut the process a lot. And that makes me think of a couple of questions. So let, me, let me start with this. You, you talk about the technology change as a tool that you use. Uh, would you like to describe to our listening audience what it was like when we convinced the powers that be that we all needed cellular phones? and what that cellular phone looked like?
0: I, I remember this very well. Uh, at, at that, at the time that we, uh, Southwestern Bell, had acquired a company called Metro Media, which operated under the brand name Cellular One here in the D.C. area and some other markets around the country, but the, the D.C. market was the one that was of uh, most importance to us. And the man who was managing the operation came to one of our staff meetings, and asked a question. Well, you know, how many of you here have have a phone, car phone? That's what it was then. They didn't even call them cell phones. Right. Just a car phone. Well, I think two people raised their hands. It was the two senior people in the office, and, and he was horrified. He said, "Oh, God! Well, that no, that's not good." He said, "Can I give all of you phones?" And we're <laughs> Hands shot up yeah. in the air immediately. And, yeah. and the, the the two bosses in the office were kind of shaking their head, no, because <laughs> it was considered a real perk only for yep. executives at a certain level. And then after a while, I think that gentleman, whose name I've forgotten, probably worked it a little bit more, was saying, this is not good for us in, in the business in D.C. We want these people who are out and about to be able to demonstrate the technology when they have people in the car with them. Great. So finally we get them, and they had the, the battery for the phone was in the trunk of the car. Yep. But you could snap the battery out and put it in a carrying case, which is what you and I used which to Which is do. about
1: the size of a shoebox.
0: Right, and, and fairly heavy, but if you needed to be on the move. Uh, the but it had a lovely standard. shoulder strap to yeah, make it easy nice to carry around with you. And,
1: yes. and, and,
0: you know, that was what we had to deal with for a while. So it was hardly mobile, <laughs> but, you know, in a pinch,
1: yeah. you, you could take it with you. Yeah, and now, of course, all of that is in your pocket.
0: Right. right now. Right. You know one one interesting thing I think about going into the early two thousands, the the rush in the wireless industry was to make cell phones smaller and smaller so they were easier to carry. And I don't know how many people will remember the Motorola Razor, but that was a great little device. Yeah. And it really fit easily into a pocket. And, and we thought, boy, this is great. You know, how small can you make these things? And then there's a great scene in the movie Zoolander where they're carrying these tiny, <laughs> yeah. tiny little flip phones, you know. And, and everybody thinks that's cool. Well, then somebody starts to decide, well, we can make these phones do more than just place phone calls but we need a bigger screen. And I remember some of us kind of skeptical about that, that, the industry spent a lot of time trying to shrink these things so that it's easy for people to carry. Do people really want to carry something that's now gonna be much larger than that? Along comes the iPhone, and the answer was obviously yes, it is. Yes.
1: And now iPhone Plus, which is bigger than your pocket. Right. That, yeah, right. right, I get that. Before we leave the topic about tools, and I get to my next question, uh, so you, you, technology has obviously played a role in how your approach to advocacy has changed over the years, but you've also used that as a marketing tool. What about this, the how you contact decision makers, members, staff, other people around town? Has that changed at all? You
0: know, for, for me personally, it, it really hasn't. I mean, you still have to do the basic things. You need to, whatever the issue is going to be, you need to, to have your arguments ready. Yeah. Uh, explain why member X should agree with your position on it. You need to be able to explain it to them briefly and understandably, and sometimes the technology in the industry makes that harder than we would like it to be. I'm sure there are other industries where it's even more complicated, but those basics have not changed. Okay.
1: It, you're using white papers still? You're still taking printout stuff? Or emailing? Usually PDFs. we do both, of course.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. You know, belt and suspender. So if you go into a meeting someone, we we take a hard copy of the document and we then follow it up, you know, uh, thanks for your time and, you know, here, here's an electronic version of the documents I left you earlier today.
1: So. Yeah. And AT&T obviously has a large pack. you still That's utilize true. that as a tool?
0: Well, yes, we do. And, and, again, that really hasn't changed either. We try to evaluate members on the basis of uh, have they been supportive of our agenda, and to what extent have they been? And, and we want to help those members yep. when they're running for election or reelection. One
1: of my recent guests talked about doing that from the think tank world, where they created a, an AFLCO-like scorecard. Do, does it go to that level at ATT? Well,
0: we've kind of gone through different versions of trying to evaluate members. Uh, Yeah, and at one time we tried to develop a scorecard, but, you know, there are always so many nuances where just a vote, and lots of times we don't have that many votes on our issues, so well, now you have to look to what members have said or have they, you know, written public letters or things like that on the topics we care about.
1: Hearing questions. Yeah,
0: hearing questions. So how do you evaluate where they stand on these issues? It's not quite as simple as a voting scorecard. Yeah,
1: and then I assume you're still... You have a rush of uh, challenges from a calendar standpoint because there's always some event. There's a fundraiser, There's a there might be a briefing that you guys are putting together or someone else's. How much pressure does that put on you now that you've been doing this for so many years versus when you were early in your career and trying to... Not only make a name for yourself, but make sure you're representing your company.
0: Yeah, in in some sense, because of all the resources we have here in our office, it's a little bit easier. Hmm. Uh, Spread
1: around a little more?
0: And and when we need information, we can get it pretty quickly. I mean, there's somebody there, uh, we have a team of people that are there to do that Anytime we need background research or we need a document prepared quickly we can get that done usually with a fairly short turnaround time. So in that sense the process has become a, a little bit easier. But in terms of just the calendar itself, again, you know, we follow the congressional schedule and you generally know every year when the recesses are going to be and when the busiest times typically are, and so that helps planning too.
1: Yeah, are you, at this point in your career, are you still doing a lot of the evening fundraisers, the fundraising trips?
0: You know, you kind of go uh, where the members hold their events, you know, yeah. and when they hold them. Uh, for those of us that live in Virginia, the morning commute has gotten a lot worse oh my gosh, yes. over the last 15, 20 years. So, whereas I used to do a lot of breakfast events, that's really a challenge now, unless I get up ridiculously early. And yeah. so I tend to shy away from those. But the rest of the day, you know, if that's when the member's holding the event and if it's someone we're supporting, that's when we get it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, with all this onslaught of events that you have to track and that others in the office are doing as well, sometimes that can take over your life. I mean, that could be a Not quite 724, but it certainly fills breakfast, like you said, certainly the work day, and then evenings most most times, particularly when members are in town or during recess when they're having their events. But you've raised a family. You and Debbie both worked while you had two boys growing up in the house. How was that balance achieved?
0: Not very easily. Uh, Again, probably the only thing that made planning for it better was... You know when congress is going to be in session you know the events are most likely on tuesday wednesday and thursday mm-hmm. um, but still there was always once you you didn't know exactly when the particular event would be so you know you have to work that out and you know tell debbie okay i've got dinners you know tuesday and wednesday night this week so i won't be home yeah. and you know Kids are grown now, so it's not an issue for me anymore. But for the younger ones in our office, yeah, that's something they have to work around with their spouse and and try to make sure that that everything is covered at home. And you do, it's not a huge sacrifice compared to what a lot of people have to do with their professional lives. Yeah, you do have to recognize that you're going to miss some some games and. scouting events or whatever your kids might be involved in because you have to be gone at night and on weekends when
1: you're traveling occasionally. Yeah, it is a constant struggle in this town. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well-known but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the Presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine find podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Kent, you've been at this for so long, but you have several times mentioned staff, and a lot of my previous guest have emphasized the importance of staff as well, not just on Capitol Hill, but staff in agencies, staff at the administration. Some might think that you've been doing this for so long that you don't have to bother with staff. You know so many members. That's clearly not the case. I get it.
0: Uh, No, I mean, you can never overlook the importance of staff. Uh, Of course, the better they are, the more you you are eager to talk to them because you're going to get good feedback from them and and that. And you also know that their bosses are probably relying on
1: them
0: a lot, too. So, uh, yeah, and over time you do develop good relationships with a number of members, but it doesn't mean you can just pick up the phone and call the member directly if, if you have something you want to talk about. So staff is critical.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. Well, and you've been one. You spent time <laughs> on that. Let's talk about your path the glory here. You're not uncommon, and you're like a lot of other people, in that you worked on the Hill. You worked for a senator. Right. All right. You actually interned on the Hill before that, didn't you? That's right. On the House side? Yes. Is that right? Okay. But you're a bit unique in the sense that you were already here in Washington for a period of your life. And you went to Jeb Stewart High for a year to have. Uh,
0: now called Justice High. Yes, yes. it is. I, yes. I went to Jeb Stewart for a couple of years. My, my dad had been appointed as a commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission by Nixon. When it,
1: it was wow, eight, you are that old. Yes,
0: I am. <laughs> uh, and it, it was... Uh, Nixon's first term uh, Bob Dole had just been elected to the Senate from Kansas and my dad had been his campaign chairman and as I remember it uh, Dole called my dad one day at his office and said he was in the broadcasting business radio business in Kansas and said how'd you like to be on the FCC and my dad said, I don't know right this would be all right he said, all right I'll get back to you you know in a couple weeks however long later Dole calls me back okay it's all set it's gonna be announced <laughs> next week so we moved here to DC, I went to, to Stewart my sophomore and junior years before returning to Kansas. But it gave me enough of, of the bug, I guess, that I was definitely very interested in it and wanted to come back at some point. Did to go to law school.
1: Yeah, uh, we should point out you're a proud KU Jayhawk. Yes,
0: I should have. I didn't mean to skip right. over that, right? But, but
1: you still wanted to get back to Washington.
0: But still wanted to get back to Washington. So you went to KU, then came back to law school at GW. And during my final year of law school, Nancy Kasselbaum was elected to the Senate from Kansas. Mm-hmm. And so I started working for her as uh, soon as she took office. That's great. And worked great. for her three and a half years.
1: So I know the answer to this, but why don't you tell our audience who you interned for yeah. and how, you know, why that was important.
0: Yes, my, the, the congressman that represented uh, my hometown was named Keith Sebelius. Uh, his daughter in law, incidentally, is Kathleen Sebelius, the former HHS secretary for Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Keith's chief of staff was Pat Roberts, now Senator Roberts. And so I spent a really fun summer here. Uh, it was in 1975, so it was just after Nixon had left office and Ford was president. Mm-hmm. I remember they were filming the movie All the President's Men, and wow. so we went over to the Library of Congress and watched the. You know, 30-second scene where uh, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford run up the steps mm-hmm. as they're, you know, going in to do research in the Library of Congress. And that added to my interest in, in finding a way to work in Congress at some point. So a year after that, I came back to start law school, and then, like I say, Nancy got elected, and things unfolded from there. Yeah.
1: You know, I've heard Pat Roberts tell a little bit of this story. Don't remember the context of why he was telling it, but it tended to uh, revolve mainly around elbows flying. <laughs> a lot of basketball
0: court time, was it? Yeah. When Pat was still on the staff, there were a group of us that would play basketball Saturday mornings at, I think it's so-called Wakefield Rec Center or something like oh, that. Oh, yeah. It's Over, just outside the Beltway. Walter off, Reed uh, A couple of us had played a little bit of college basketball. The rest of us were terrible. Uh, particularly Pat and me, we were always the last two guys picked. But we had to get there really early to get a court before people knew how to play showed up, and you know, you'd lose a challenge game. So we'd get there, I think, at seven o'clock or something like that on Saturday. We could get in a good hour and a half. And you know, Pat always claimed that that I use my elbows a lot, and you know, I, I have very bony elbows, and they are an effective defensive weapon in basketball. I mean, especially when there aren't
1: any rest. Getting around picks. Right. <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: Well, that had to be a great way to start a, a network as well. I mean, yeah. it had to be fun just doing that. But, my gosh, set aside the fact that the guy becomes a U.S. senator right. for a very long time, just right. now retiring. right. But you must have met several people who you've continued to know and work with over the years. Yeah. You?
0: I mean, it was, it was uh, mostly uh, comprised of a group of Kansans, yeah. Kansans that... We were either working on the hill or, you know, had friends relatives working on the hill. And one of the other guys that, that joined us uh, was, at the time, Dole's chief of staff, getting Rich Armitage, mm-hmm. who went on to be deputy secretary of state under Colin Powell in right. the Bush administration. And he lived near there. He was kind of the one that got us started there. He knew about this rec center and said, here's where we can go. And... And all that. And so, yeah, it was really a lot of fun and, and, yeah, we, you know, solidified some relationships that would have just been casual otherwise.
1: Right. And what did you do for Senator Castlebaum?
0: I was one of her legislative assistants. She served on the Commerce Committee, which is sort of how I got into the telecom world. I mean, I was interested in the broadcasting side because of Dad being sure. in that business and I had worked at the radio station in our hometown during summers in my college years and, and that. Uh, but I was designed to handle her commerce committee work outside of the aviation committee. Oh. She, a subcommittee. She chaired that subcommittee the last couple of years I was there, and so she had separate staff for that. But I did all the telecom and other commerce committee stuff, and I really started to gravitate away from the broadcasting as I was learning more about. The telecom world, this is all prior to the at and you mm, referenced okay. earlier. And thought, this is really interesting where this is headed. So that was kind of how I got my feet wet in the telecom world.
1: And how long did you do that for her?
0: Three, well, I don't know that I started doing the commerce stuff. I worked for three and a half years. So I'm going to say roughly three years I was doing
1: it. Okay. And tell me about the transition from that to Southwestern Bell. How, how did you even know about the job? Did they come to you?
0: Yeah, here's how that happened. So after I decided to, to leave Nancy's office, uh, Debbie and I decided, well, we should move back to Kansas. You're not supposed to stay in Washington forever. So
1: Yeah, that worked out well for you.
0: Yeah. So uh, she's from Kansas City, so we moved back there, and I was working at a law firm. And almost immediately realized, oh, I, I think I like it better back in Washington. <laughs> so I lasted about a year and a half of that. That firm was a great firm, and they treated me very well. It just wasn't for me, you yeah. know? uh so we came back here and i got a job working at the fcc in their general counsel's office which is where they house their legislative affairs operation so i was kind of a lobbyist for the fcc in a sense and one day on the elevator at the fcc i saw this woman that i was pretty sure i recognized and she was kind of looking at me the same way so we started chatting. It turned out when I'd worked for Nancy, she had been a lobbyist for MCI, a company A few oh, yes. people will remember. And I kind of told her what I was up to. but, you know, didn't consider the FCC a career. And I forget if it was during that conversation or if she called me later. At this point, it was just as uh, at and was breaking up, and she said. You know, well, I know you're from Kansas, and, you know, Southwestern Bell I heard, is looking for people. They're setting up their own office in D.C., and I don't remember how I got connected with a particular individual there, whether she knew the person or I found out through other sources, but sent a resume over there and, you know, had a couple of interviews, and one thing led to the next, and wound up working for
1: Southwestern Bell. Yeah, the classic example of the value of being there at right. the right time, the right place, and then the network.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: that's come up a couple of times on this podcast, and it's just amazing how people, whether they come to town and they're looking for a job or they're trying to make a career shift from their young professionals here in town, they get so focused on finding the right job finding the best job, or the perfect job, right away. And yet, it's often these small steps that lead to something much bigger and better. Right, right. yeah. And you were lucky, extremely lucky yeah, I mean, to, to find one that you could stick with for so right. long.
0: And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there were several points where I, I thought, you know, well, it's time to do something. But at that point, I still had my head to either don't stay in Washington forever, or you certainly should change jobs fairly frequently. And any time that thought might have entered my mind, from the time I started at Southwestern Bell, something significant changed in my job. It's like, oh, well, this is kind of fun. I'll do this for a little bit longer.
1: Yeah, so you, you basically had the very full resume, but with one company logo it, at the top of it. Right, on. I
0: mean, I feel yeah. like I've had maybe half a dozen different jobs yeah. that were all essentially started with Southwestern Bell.
1: Well, so looking back on that, that great career, can you point to one or maybe two things that you would consider the biggest challenges that you faced?
0: That's a good question. If I hadn't thought about that, I, I think, and, and you were really a part of this.
1: That wait, wait, I was not a challenge. for you.
0: No, 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 <laughs> not that you were a challenge. You were a part of this challenge because after you came over was when we were really ramping up our efforts to, to get out from under the restrictions mm-hmm. of the consent decree that broke up AT&T. And, you know, for a while it just seemed like we're never going to get this done.
1: Exactly.
0: Because... We, we, you know, if, if we could have forced a vote, up-and-down vote on it, we would have won. But as we all learned in the legislative process, it doesn't take very many people to stop something if they're in key positions. It's a lot
1: easier to play defense.
0: Yep, and we always had a few of those obstacles that we just couldn't overcome.
1: And not to be cynical about it, but it mm-hmm. seemed like there was a period of time, year after year, when we would get some legislation drafted and then it would typically be released right before the August recess and that turned into nothing more than a fundraising tool for the members who were engaged in the topic and the bill was never designed to go on both sides it was never designed to go anywhere
0: no and really in early 95 the republicans had just taken over congress And you had this unusual confluence of events where telecom legislation is hardly ever a top priority, you know, sort of front page news type thing. But you had the president, Bill Clinton, his vice president, Al Gore, who'd always been deeply involved in telecom policy when he was in Congress.
1: Well, he invented the internet. He did. Uh,
0: The new speaker of the House, New Gingrich, and the majority leader of the Senate, Bob Dole, all decided, no, we're doing this yeah. this time. This is a big deal. And by then it had grown from just, we gotta help these bill companies out into the comprehensive overhaul of what was then the 1934 Communications Act. And then in February of 96, you and I, among others, got to go to a signing ceremony in the Library of Congress main reading room yeah. for that legislation. So in that period of roughly 10 <laughs> years. quickly
1: became outdated. <laughs> oh yeah. But you know I mean. Where we but that just like simply because it changed the whole landscape not only from a technology standpoint but the regulatory standpoint right. and this whole market exploded.
0: Right. And so you know where we spent the better part of those 10 years thinking we're never going to get this to all of a sudden wow this is going to happen.
1: So, so the, in that sense the challenge was one somewhat of the, the sense of defeatism where just you know, what are we ever going to get this done? Are we ever going to when, and, are they, when are they going to stop paying me to keep doing this?
0: Right. You know, when are they going to give up and, and get rid of all of this? Yeah. But,
1: exactly.
0: You know, I, I think we also knew, in, at least in the back of our minds, that eventually this will happen. It's right. got to happen. You know, because we knew for our little piece of what was the '96 Act that what we were ad- advocating for, it, it was time for that. It was the right thing to do from a policy standpoint. So, but there were a lot of days when it just felt like no.
1: Yeah, amen to that. You mentioned several of the mergers that have changed your company over the years. Tell us a bit about what that is like from a federal relations standpoint. Because that is that is such a merger and acquisition corporate world, people think of New York and the boardroom managing all this, but there is a government relations aspect to it. How did you manage that?
0: Right. So. Uh our first one was when we, Southwestern Bell, acquired Pactel, which was the local phone company for California and Nevada. And you quickly learn, as, as lobbyists representing the company, that this is the most important thing on yeah. the company's agenda. Whatever other issue you were working on, don't do anything on that unless you're absolutely certain you've done everything you can do on the merger. So obviously Congress doesn't approve mergers, but what you don't want to have happen is have members of Congress crying out publicly against the merger, writing letters to the Justice Department and the FCC against the merger that this is bad for consumers, bad for competition. So we spend a lot of time going around educating members. Here's why we're doing this from our company's perspective. Here's why we think it's good for consumers and your constituents. you know, we would like you not only to not weigh in against it, we would appreciate it if, if you agree with us, mm-hmm. that you would weigh in in favor of it. Uh, often, not every occasion, but often, there would be congressional hearings on these big mergers. Right. Uh, and so the members that served on those committees, whether it's commerce or judiciary, we'd ask them to, hey, if you agree with us that this is a good thing, please say so at the hearing. So you spend an awful lot of time answering their questions, you know, first trying to make your case, and then the more they thought about it, they'd have other questions that, well, what's this going to mean for the employees of the acquired company? Right. You know, uh, in, in the case of Pactel, if you're dealing with a California member, well, okay, this is great for you guys, Southwestern Bell, but what about my constituents that work for Pactel? Are their jobs going to be secure? And so a lot of questions like that that you have to deal with. And we basically went through that with every merger that we've been engaged in. Yeah.
1: Did, were there, was there anything surprising in any of those that you didn't anticipate from a reaction standpoint?
0: No, because there are some members that you know are just almost always going to be against a merger, especially when it's right. companies of the sizes that we're talking about. And it's just an instinctive concern about it. Bigness and, and big is probably bad. Maybe it's not always bad, but, you know, that's going to be their first reaction. So I'm probably going to be opposed to this. And so you just, <clears throat> you go ahead and talk to them and try to make the case why th- this is different and it should be okay. So I don't think there were a lot of surprises, at least from the congressional perspective. Some of them ended up being more difficult in the regulatory part of the process, either at the FCC or the Justice Department. That was never my direct responsibility, but it could get frustrating how long it took. For example, the Pacto merger, I believe, was concluded within a year, almost a year exactly to the day. And then shortly after that, when we endeavored to acquire Ameritech, the local telephone company for the upper Midwestern states, well, all right, now we're getting even bigger, so more suspicions are being raised, and that took 18, 19 months to get approved. So, and then in this last one, the Time Warner merger, I mean, the Justice Department filed to block it. So we had to go through a trial, which we won, and an appeal, which we won. And so th- there are always curveballs like that that you worry about, but from the standpoint of a congressional lobbyist, you're still doing basically the same thing in terms of making members feel comfortable with this.
1: Yeah. Speaking of DOJ, You do have to factor in what an administration is going to say about all this as well. And obviously from an outsider now, looking at that merger process, it seemed like the president was engaging.
0: That's something we'll never know. Uh, When we announced it, it was during the campaign. It was in October of 2016. And so then candidate Trump was asked about it. And he said, well, my administration will never approve that. And I forget exactly what his rationale was, but it wasn't just that, that company getting too big, but it was along those lines. I
1: mean, it seemed like it was aimed at CNN or not Well,
0: else. and yeah, he and had time a well-known antipathy towards CNN, and yeah. CNN was part of Time Warner, so we were going to be acquiring them. So, okay, you know, at the time, we thought, well, you know, campaign rhetoric, you we don't know how seriously to take that. And then it took a while for them to get an assistant AG for antitrust nominated and confirmed, so the Justice Department was basically doing nothing. That merger was also different in the sense that the few FCC licenses that Time Order held were basically CNN licenses for satellite trucks or something like that. And so those are going to be divested anyway. So the FCC had no role in this merger. It was all up to the Justice Department. Well, we had to wait, wait and wait for them to have an assisted AG for antitrust. And then much to our dismay, he decided we are going to block this merger. So there were some members of Congress on the Democratic side that tried to get documents from the White House or DOJ to find if there was any communication from the President ordering the Justice Department. To block this merger but they, they never got a hold of any documents if there are and we don't know and we never will know i suspect whether there was any direct involvement by the president
1: sometimes you don't want to know
0: <laughs> well now that it's all over it's it's okay yeah it's
1: academic right well kent as we get towards the conclusion of this episode you've had such a great career in town that along the way you've been a, a mentor to so many younger people, in not only the telecommunications industry, but just kind of advocacy overall. I've talked to so many people who know you, so many people who value their relationship with you. I certainly feel that way about my own career here in town, but what is a great piece of advice you could give someone who wants to get started, someone who's looking for perhaps the the next step in their young professional career?
0: I still believe for somebody that wants to get started there's no great substitute for actually working on the Hill. If you want to be a congressional lobbyist, that having that experience, making some connections up there, I think it's always important to remember when you are lobbying congressional offices, how hard the staff has to work, how many demands are on their time, and to make sure that you are respectful of that, and that you don't waste their time. Uh, it may be somewhat personal to me, but when I was on the staff, that was one of my pet peeves, was uh, a lobbyist coming in unannounced and asking for my time with nothing in particular to talk about or to ask for, for us to do or, or not do. So uh, I hope I've never forgotten that lesson, but I think that's really important for anybody that's making that transition from working on the Hill to being an advocate.
1: Well put. And that is all the time we have for today's episode of 80 Proof Politics. I want to thank my guest, Bert, Kent Wells, for being with us today. And remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in Washington, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's always room to fill your drink. Kent, thanks for being here. Thank you, Bill.
0: It's been fun. But I have a lot more to say. (laughs)